Thank you for downloading this man-to-man podcast from Awakened Heart Ministries. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. You can find out more about Dr. Scott Engelman and the Awakened Heart Ministries team on our website at ahm4.life. He says, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thinking may be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. What's he saying? Again, notice, the serpent worked in the past in a cunning way behind the scenes. You know, he presented himself uh, in the disguise of the, the serpent. So he's still working like that today. Welcome to session two, part one of this AHM Connect series, Speaking Into the Chaos. foundation is Christian, historical Christianity believes in a real creation. That it's not just a nice story that kind of says something about something spiritual. We believe that there is a real creation, that it really happened, there were real events, there were real people, uh, real things were set in order, that all have consequences for today. And so it's based off that that presupposition that there is a creation and we are going back to that creation to learn about ourselves today and about all what's going on in our culture today. Now, today I want to start with um, uh, uh, the book, uh, The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. How many of you ever read any of uh, this. Great book. So you probably know what it's about. It's uh, written uh, as Lewis describes the spiritual battle from the viewpoint of this old demon named what? Screwtape. And, and he is writing a series of letters to his nephew, a young novice inexperienced demon by the name of Wormwood. And he has all different letters throughout the book. One of the letters to Wormwood says this, My dear Wormwood, you may ask whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance or your own, uh, ignorance of your own experience. That question, at least for the present phase of the war, has been answered for us by the high command. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. For when they believe in us, we cannot make them secularists or skeptics. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The patient, by the way, is his, the person that he's after. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in modern Im- imagination will help you. Uh, in any faint, if any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it is an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Well, what's, what's Lewis saying here? He's saying this. Satan's strategy... In the spiritual battle today, there's a spiritual battle going on, 
And, and Lewis is saying that that strategy is to cunningly conceal himself behind a secular or skeptical culture to which he seeks to conform people to. He's working today in plain sight. And he's working today behind our culture, which Lewis describes here as secular and skeptical, in order to conform people to that culture. Now, why so? Well, the word secular in Lewis's day and ours today also means something like God is not necessary, nor is he welcome. You know, God has his place to play if there is one, but not in the public. Where real things happen, God has no place. That's the idea of secular. Skeptical has to do with the idea of, is there a God? And if so, does he speak? Does he move into our world, or is he distant from it? And and a skeptical culture says, God does not speak, nor has he spoken. God is not necessary, nor is he welcome. And my question is, is Lewis correct? Is this the strategy that Satan is using today to go after us? Well, let's look and see what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians 9, or 2 says this, My purpose in writing to you is so that Satan should not thwart us. Why? For we are not ignorant of his evil schemes. What's the idea of a scheme? He's doing something in a cunning, crafty way that you might not recognize, right? He says, we're not ignorant of those schemes. In 2 Corinthians 11, he says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thinking may be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. What's he saying? Again, notice, the serpent worked in the past in a cunning way behind the scenes. You know, he presented himself... Uh, in the disguise of the, the serpent, so he's still working like that today. In Romans 12, 2, Paul says this, Do not be conformed to the spirit of this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good. Again, the idea, why does Paul say this? That there is this culture, this, this spirit of the age that is seeking to conform us to itself. And who is behind all of this? Well, it's the ancient serpent who is seeking to conform us to the spirit of the age. And that spirit, Lewis says, is secular and skeptical. God is not necessary. God does not speak. In 2 Corinthians 11.14, For such men are false prophets, are false apostles, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And why would they do that? Well, no wonder, he says, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He works in plain sight through a secular culture in order to conform us to that culture. That's what Lewis is saying. In other words, another way to put it, Satan's war on humanity is done in plain sight by using the surrounding culture through deceptive scheming and evil cunning. That's what I want you to see. It began that way in the garden, and guess what? It's continued that way all the way to the present. It's part of his strategy. So if that's true, then the question is this. If Satan works behind the culture through deceptive schemes and cunning strategies, 
And if the Bible warns about his schemes and strategies, that we're not to be ignorant of them, that we're not to be led astray by them, and Ephesians 6 says that we're to stand against them, then what are those cultural schemes and strategies he is currently using to turn people away from God? Because that's ultimately what he's wanting to do. To turn us away from God. God is not necessary. God does not speak. Therefore, I'm going to do what I want to do. And that's what he's been doing ever since the garden. So, what are those cunning strategies that he is using through the culture? Well, the thesis of our series that we began last time and are going to be continuing through December is this. Behind today's chaotic cultural storm is the serpent's cunning strategy to turn people away from God by destroying the goodness of creation necessary for human flourishing. That's what he attacked in the garden, the goodness of creation, the, the crown of creation, human beings, and that's what he's doing today. How he did that in the garden and how he's doing that today is through this message. God and his ways are oppressive and must be replaced. How God has ordered things where you can't eat of this fruit, man, that's oppressive and you've got to replace God, do it yourself. And what I, part of this thesis is this, that message is being echoed throughout our contemporary culture through what we called last time contemporary secularism. Okay, now what is contemporary secularism? How I defined that last time is this. It's a cynical framework. It's not a hopeful framework. It's a cynical framework. Well, this is what we're after, but it ain't going to work, but we're going to do it anyway. That's the idea. It's a cynical framework for doing life that holds. Any hope for human flourishing will come from liberating marginalized identity groups from all social norms, structures, and beliefs. And by the way, those social norms, structures, and beliefs have been constructed by dominant groups. They don't come from God. They come from dominant groups, the privileged, the powerful groups, that work to oppress and discriminate against the marginalized identity, truth, and power. That's how I define contemporary secularism. Now, this definition is built on three things. It's built on secularism that comes out of the Enlightenment. God is not necessary for life. It, it's built also on postmodernism, uh, the universal truth, universal truth, God does, uh, that uh, universal truth, excuse me, does not exist. So God is not necessary for life. He doesn't exist. Universal truth doesn't exist. And so critical theory says this, that since God doesn't exist and truth doesn't exist, there's no unifying story that unites us all, the only thing there is is power, and the struggle for power is all there is. It's kind of like Darwin in the survival of the fittest. Power is all there is, and the struggle for power is all that exists. That's why it's such a cynical framework for doing life. And all this, this liberation from the power groups, the, the oppressor groups uh, of the oppressed groups comes through social justice, liberation through revolution. Now, all of this 
is what's driving our culture today. And what I'm suggesting is this contemporary secularism, in the back of it is this message. God and His ways are oppressive and they must be replaced. This is his strategy in the present. Working in plain sight through the culture to conform us to the culture. Now last time we concluded that contemporary secularism then is the new skin on the same ancient serpent based on five similarities we saw with his strategy in the garden. And, and I won't go through this real I'll go through this real quick since you have it last time. Uh, there's assault on goodness of the created order. We see that both in Genesis 3 and today. Uh, uh, it appears as non-threatening. He appeared as a serpent, which was in, in, in the context there, a, sub, a subordinate creature to Adam and Eve. And today it appears in non-threatening forms in terms of institutions that we trust. Uh, the target in the Genesis was human vulnerabilities, innocence. The target today is human vulnerabilities, uh, shame, guilt, the desire for virtue. Uh, both in the old or in Genesis 3 and today cast doubt on God's word. God didn't say that. God didn't say that, both today. And then the deceptive message to inflame rebellion. It's the same in Genesis 3 as it is today. God and his ways are oppressive and they must be replaced. So in light of that, we're saying that the, the contemporary secularism is the new skin on the ancient serpent. And then we also, as we went through our time last time, we offered three man sidebars. And I think it's just important that we review those again. Sidebar number one, we said that God made men to project to protect the goodness of his creation by speaking what God spoke into all threatening forms of chaos. That was one of our main responsibilities as God created us a real event to do a real job. We were to protect the goodness of creation by speaking into any forms of chaos that came our way what God said about the goodness of creation. And this is what it meant to be a masculine man. Second sidebar, we saw that Adam in Genesis 3 failed to protect the goodness of God's creation when he chose to remain silent, passive, and compliant with the chaos. In other words, instead of Adam being a masculine man, in that moment he chose to be a sub-masculine man. And then third sidebar, we said this. With a chaotic storm brewing over America today, we must remember that we were, as men, were made for such a time as this. What were we made for? To protect the goodness of creation by speaking into it what God has spoken about it. And so that is the masculine choice. We all have a choice to make as men. And that masculine choice is this. What kind of men we will, will we choose to be in this present chaotic storm? With all the chaos going on today, what kind of man are you going to choose to be? Will we choose to be masculine men that speak and move and engage the storm? 
and all that it's about, or will we choose to be submasculine men that are silent, passive, and compliant with the storm? That's the choice that every man needs to make today, and it's been the choice every man has been required to make ever since God created us in the beginning. So today's focus, and in light of all of that, today's focus is speaking into the chaos, assaulting marriage in the family. I mean, you don't have to go far to know that, man, when it comes to marriage, there's a lot of confusion about what's being said today, isn't there? A lot of chaos. When it comes to the family, a lot of things going on with the family that, you know, um, are really chaotic and confusing. What's parents' authority? Does the government have authority to teach uh, what they think is right, or do the parents? Uh, a lot of confusion when it comes to marriage and the family. And so today's outline, in light of that, is God's good creation of marriage and the family. Second, we're going to look at the serpent's cunning assault on marriage and the family. And finally, our masculine choice in the chaos in regards to marriage and the family. Okay? So three things. Um, God's good creation of marriage and the family. How Satan, the serpent, is attacking the goodness of creation today. And how then do we speak into this chaos that is infecting marriage in the family today as a result of the ancient serpent's assault. Okay? So, point number one. God's good creation of marriage in the family. According to the biblical creation story in Genesis 1 and 2, marriage and the family are core elements of the goodness of God's creation. Remember we said that the first five days, God makes something, and at the end of every day, He looks back and He says, oh, this is good. And what's good is the design, the diversity, the set order, and the harmonious function. He creates the sun and the moon, the seasons. They all work together. And in the midst of the goodness of creation, God also creates marriage and family as part of the goodness of creation. They're established by God in the beginning. And by that, what I want to say that marriage and family are not, they're not social constructs that have been evolved through the years. They've been established by God from the beginning. They're part of the creation design. And second, they're also designed to be necessary for human flourishing. Everything in those first five and six days, it is good, it is good, it is good. And it's moving towards the last declaration of, of, that God makes on creation. What's the last declaration? It is very good. Very good for what? For human flourishing. Everything that God is creating and forming is all for you and I as His image bearers to flourish in that world as we represent Him and live for Him on His behalf. So, the creation story, in light of that, what I want us to see, the creation story reveals four things about marriage. First, marriage is rooted in God's creative act for mankind to represent Him in the world as male and female image bearers. And so, when you think about marriage and creation, you got to remember this. 
Marriage is rooted in the very creative act when God said, let us make man in our image, male and female. Second, marriage consists of what the Bible calls a one flesh union of the male and female image bearer, equal in kind, diverse, uh, different in function, and harmonious in purpose. So, it's rooted in God's creative act. It consists of a union between a man and a woman. Third, marriage involves leaving one's family of origin and cleaving to one's spouse to establish a new family, distinct from the other two families. Okay? So it involves the creation of a new family. That's what marriage was intended to be about from the beginning. And then lastly, marriage and family was established by God as the vehicle for you and I, mankind, to accomplish God's mandate. It's the first mandate He gives in Genesis 1.28, and you see that in Genesis 2.20, 21, 24. The mandate is this. Go into the world and fill and subdue it and rule over it on my behalf. In other words, go into the world and make it flourish. Make it flourish. So marriage and family are the vehicle that God has established for human flourishing. That's our part in the process of human flourishing. Now, from those four truths, we can determine four fixed realities about marriage and family that never change. Four fixed realities that you can take to the bank based on creation. These are true about marriage and family. Fixed realities. Number one, because marriage is rooted in the intentional actions of God in creation, it wasn't an accident, He intentionally did it, marriage is sacred in nature. In fact, in Matthew 19, Jesus refers back to the creation account of man and woman in regards to marriage, and He affirms the sacredness of marriage. And because marriage is sacred in nature, it's not to be tampered with. It's not to be redefined. It's to be treated as sacred. How did God create it and intend it? That's to treat it as sacred. Second, because marriage is the union between a male and female image bearer, what? Marriage is monogamous, only one, one man, one woman, heterosexual, a man and a woman, not a, a woman and a woman or a man and a man. It's monogamous and heterosexual in function. In other words, one man, one woman by design. Third, because marriage involves leaving one's family of origin to establish a new family with one spouse. Another reality about marriage is it is the foundation for family. It is the foundation for family. In other words, no marriage, no family. God's design is that family exists, but family comes out of the marriage between one man and one woman. Lastly, because marriage and family were established by God as the vehicle to accomplish His divine mandate, go into the world, fill it, 
and subdue it. Marriage is transcendent in purpose. There's something bigger about marriage than just you and me. It's more than love, and it's more than companionship. If it, all it is is love, and all it is is companionship, and it's evolved just because that's how it worked out, there's no creation, then yeah, if two men love each other, if two men find companionship with each other, yeah, why not marriage? But, if it is transcended in purpose, it's about something bigger, and it requires a man and a woman who come together to create a family, and all of that is sacred, and it's all part of the transcendent purpose of God, then marriage and family have to be fulfilled by God's design and God's purpose according to God's function. Okay? So those four fixed realities about marriage and the family, they all come from the idea of there really was a creation and it really happened and people really were created. They didn't evolve. God created us in the beginning. We put it another way, marriage and family are key foundation stones. They're not the only stones, foundational stones. We see all of them in Genesis 1 and 2 but they're key foundational stones in the good design of God's created order necessary for human flourishing. Which means then you take away either stone, marriage or family, by confusing, redefining its purpose, design, or function. And what will happen to human flourishing? It will collapse into chaos. And guess what we're seeing today? It's kind of collapsing into chaos, isn't it? So here's my question. If the proper function of marriage and family are necessary for human flourishing, as God designed from the beginning, then how did God create marriage and family to function within His created order? It's a legitimate question, right? How does marriage function? How does family, how did He intend family to function? Well, let's look, first of all, at God's created function for marriage. And here, guys, we could say a lot. I mean, you could have one whole series on each of these here. So I'm not going to try to go into them or defend them, only say, this is what God says. First, marriage functions within a covenant. Marriage is established by instituting a man and a woman, instituting a covenant that is entered into before God and con consummated by sexual intercourse. Sexual intercourse could be considered the sign of the marriage covenant. Meaning what? Sex is intended by God only for marriage. Sex outside of marriage is not part of God's design. So it functions within a covenant. Second, it functions within permanence. It's established by God to be a lifelong relationship with divorce permitted for prescribed reasons. And Jesus discusses that in Matthew 19 and Mark 10. But it's intended to be a permanent relationship. It functions within a covenant, a promise. It functions also with a sense of exclusivity. 
No other person or thing is to interfere with the marriage commitment between a husband and wife. Nothing is to have and hold the heart of a man and a woman more than the heart of each other. It's exclusive relationship. It's the priority relationship. It also functions with mutuality, the Bible tells us. Husbands and wife are equally concerned about the well-being of the other and equally committed to give to the other. That's part of God's function for marriage. Uh, fifth, it functions within a gender design. Again, here's where we could spend lots of time, but I just want to note the function. God says this. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, Genesis 2. Husbands bear the responsibility for marriage while wives submit to his leadership as suitable helpers. Again, that needs to be played out, fleshed out. We don't have time for that. My only purpose is there really is equality, but a, a different way we function as male and female image bearers. And it's that different function that is done in a harmonious way that creates that marriage that flourishes and produces a sense of life. And then lastly, it functions with life-giving purpose. Marriage serves to ensure the divine mandate for human flourishing continues by the establishment of families. Marriage is not just about how me and my wife can just have a nice life. Marriage has a bigger transcendent purpose. It's about bringing the next generation into the world so that God's creation continue to go forward and flourish as He intended. Okay? So it functions within covenant, permanence, exclusivity, mutuality, gender design, and a life-giving purpose. What about family? What's God's design for family? There are three components to family, three personalities within a family. Fathers, mothers, and children, right? Again, we could say a lot here, but let me just give an overview. Fathers are to provide and protect the family and their children, 2 Corinthians 12. They are to train their children to know, love, serve God from the heart, Deuteronomy 6, Proverbs uh, 1 through 10. Uh, fathers are to ensure proper nurture and discipline of children, Ephesians 6, Colossians 3, Hebrews 12. How about moms? Moms bear, raise, mother their children, 1 Timothy 2. They manage and care for the home, 1 Timothy 5. What about kids? Do they have responsibility? How are they to function in the home? Well, children to be obedient to the parents. Uh, Ephesians 6, Colossians 3. And when you turn into adults, then you care for your parents in old age. Right, Kevin? <laughs> All that to say this. Parents are responsible to shape their children into healthy, mature adults. And you know what a healthy, mature adult is? They know how to love God, and they know how to love people. Those are the two great commands. And if we can live out those two great commands, we will flourish. So the two greatest things that we can do is teach our kids to love God and love others. That's our responsibility as fathers. Dads, you have one responsibility in this. Moms have a completely different. Together, you form a complete um, responsibility in terms of parental responsibility. So, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of my favorite theologians, he says this, 
Through marriage, children are brought into being for the glory and service of Jesus Christ and for the increase of his kingdom. This means that marriage is not only a matter of producing children, but also of educating them to be obedient to Jesus Christ. In marriage, it is for the service of Jesus Christ that children are created. Notice what he says. God created marriage, and out of marriage flows what? The family. No marriage, no family. And so, let me just summarize what we've seen so far. As part of the goodness of God's creation, marriage, we can say, is a sacred sexual covenantal relationship consisting of one man and one woman, characterized by permanence, exclusivity, order, mutuality, and intimacy, uniquely designed by God to be the vehicle for mankind to accomplish the divine mandate of subduing and filling the world on God's behalf, in the bringing forth of children, for the establishment of God-centered, life-giving families, through which His transcendent purposes would be served, His plan for human flourishing would be realized, and God would be worshipped and glorified. Now, if you're here this morning and you are married, did you understand all that when you said, I do? Probably not. Probably not. But what I want you to see is if we really take creation seriously, then we really have to take marriage and the family seriously because they are not social constructs that we kind of developed over the years to make life easier. They are part of the very goodness of creation. They are foundational stones necessary for human flourishing. So here's the question. If marriage and family are part of the goodness of God's created order, and if the serpent seeks to destroy that goodness by introducing confusion and chaos into it, and if contemporary secularism is the new skin of the ancient serpent by which he is working today, then... How can we assume Satan will be assaulting God's good design, purpose, and function for marriage and the family through our present chaotic storm? How is he working in plain sight, using the culture, working behind the culture to conform us to a culture that doesn't see marriage from a creational viewpoint? That's the question, which we will answer right after the break. We hope that Scott's message today has encouraged you and helped you to better understand how God intended the power he gave us to be used. Please visit our website, ahm4.life, and click on the Resources tab. There you will see the Man to Man podcast and other resources we have available. At AHM, our mission is to provide hope and direction to men in a confusing world through Jesus Christ. Please continue to keep our ministry in your prayers, and if you'd like to donate to our efforts, visit our website and click on the Giving tab. Man-to-Man podcasts are provided by Awaken Heart Ministries, located in Troy, Michigan.